I have not met a single human that do not have unhappy memories and have not had uh, unhappy times. My hope is that we will equip people to be better at creating happy memories and be better at holding on to them. So when they look back in 5, 10, 20 years, hopefully more happy memories than negative ones will, uh, will be retrieved. You're listening to Archipelago, a podcast about arts, culture and ideas in Denmark. I'm your host, James Clasper, and this episode is all about happy memories, how to create them, how to remember them, and why they matter so much to our overall satisfaction with life. As we take a trip down memory lane, we'll find out why Andy Warhol changed his perfume every three months, why we should ignore Marie Kondo and hold on to all our souvenirs, and why we should take more photographs of our television sets, our computer screens, and our cereal boxes. We are a think tank and that looks at happiness, well-being, and quality of life from a scientific perspective. That's Mike Viking, the founder and CEO of the Happiness Research Institute, which, well, does what it says on the tin. We try to answer three questions. Uh, we try to understand how we can measure the good life or happiness. Uh, secondly, we try to understand why is it that some people are happier than others. And thirdly, we hope to understand how we can improve quality of life. As well as being one of the world's leading happiness experts, Mike is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, The Little Book of Hugo and The Little Book of Luca, which have been translated into more than 35 languages and sold more than a million copies worldwide. Little wonder then that Mike has been dubbed the Indiana Jones of smiles and probably the world's happiest man. Mike's latest book is The Art of Making Memories, a light-hearted but thought-provoking series of tips about how to create and remember happy memories. And before we crack the spine, here's a short clip from the book, read by Mike himself. One December, just before Christmas, I was spending the weekend with some friends at an old cabin. The landscape was covered in snow, which brightened the shortest day of the year. When the sun set at around four in the afternoon, we would not see it for 17 hours, and we headed inside to get the fire going. We were all tired from hiking, and in a semicircle around the fireplace in the cabin, people were half asleep, wearing big jumpers and woolen socks. The only sounds you could hear were the stew boiling, the sparks from the fireplace, and someone having a sip of their mulled wine. Then one of my friends broke the silence. Could this be any more Hugo? He asked rhetorically. Yes, one of the girls said after a while, if there was a storm raging outside. We all nodded. Last year, I shared this story in St. Petersburg, and afterwards a member of the audience said that she could hear the fire crackling. Sometimes we manage to bring stories to life, to make them so vivid that our listeners experience it with their own senses. We use some of our own personal experiences to do this. When you hear the Hugo story, you know from your own personal experience what a crackling fire sounds like, how the smoke from dry wood smells and how the flames dance between red, yellow and blue. You know how the fire feels, warming your front but leaving your back cold. So you take details from other experiences, from other sources, and add them to the story. The story is now more vivid. 
It has details about your personal experiences. So you can start to believe that it is your story, your memory. You feel you have witnessed it with your own eyes, but in fact, you heard it from someone else, and the hippo in the director's chair just got creative. What great storytellers do is bring the stories to life. Stories well told become experiences. Stories so vivid you feel you witness it with your own eyes. What we can learn from this is that we might be able to help our loved ones rebuild a memory that they have lost and rebuild it in such a manner that they don't know it is a replica. I caught up with Mike at his office in Copenhagen earlier this autumn and began with a question that I think a lot of people ask about Denmark, and that's, despite nine months of winter, it's consistently ranked as one of the world's happiest countries. So what on earth is making the Danes so happy? I think it's perhaps better to call Denmark and the other Nordic countries the least unhappy countries in the world. I know that doesn't ring as nice uh, in, in, in the media, um, but I think a lot of people forget that these rankings, like the World Happiness Report, those are based on a national average. So yeah, we can call them the happiest countries in the world, but I think it's closer to the truth uh, that they're the least unhappy countries, because the Danish model or the Nordic model is really good at eliminating or reducing causes for unhappiness. There is access to healthcare, there's access to education, there's relatively, from a global point of view, equal opportunities for, for men and women and, and, and rich and poor. There's quite generous unemployment benefits. So so a lot of things that make people around the world unhappy, uh, that is sort of mitigated by the, the Danish welfare system. Mike mentioned the United Nations World Happiness Report, which asked people to provide an overall assessment of their life and how satisfied they are with it on a scale from zero to 10. In the Nordic countries, you tend to see national averages of around 7.5. In the US or the UK, while many people score as high as 9 or 10, you'll also find a lot of people scoring 2 or 3, if not lower, and that takes the national average below 7.5. You might not think of Denmark or Norway as 9 out of 10 kind of places, but to be the world's happiest countries, they don't need to be. They just need most people to be 7.5 happy, which with their strong welfare states and relatively high equality, they are. Having figured that one out, I asked Mike to explain how memories fit into the Happiness Research Institute's work. What we can see is if you have happy memories, if you have the ability to form a positive narrative about your life, you're also happier. We can also see that those people that are struggling with depression uh, are not only feeling unhappy right now, but they're actually struggling with remembering any time they were happy at all. Uh, so there, there is a big happiness uh, component to it. And I think there is an opportunity to improve how satisfied we are with life right now, uh, to be better at creating happy memories and also retrieving uh, happy memories from the past. Now, Mike has a personal reason for being interested in happy memories. He turned 40 last year and realised that, statistically speaking, as a Danish man, he'd lived half his life. That got him thinking about his own memories, and which of the 14,610 days he'd lived he could actually remember. So he decided to start researching memories at the Happiness Research Institute. Last year, he and his colleagues carried out a massive global study of happy memories, collecting more than 1,000 from people in 75 countries. They told participants they weren't looking for anything particular, just to write down the first happy memory 
that came to mind. Perhaps you can guess how they replied. You know, it's wedding days, it's birthdays, it's milestones, it's connecting with other people. But it's also sort of very ordinary, everyday kind of, of memories that people have. And super relatable memories. So reading through the memories, super relatable, super fun. But I could also see there's a lot of common denominators when it comes to people's happy memories. There's a lot of common ingredients. And that also means that we are able to use those ingredients when we are creating new memories. And that, in a sense, is what Mike's latest book is all about. One of the biggest sort of aha moments in researching and writing it was getting to the understanding that our memories are not necessarily just these spontaneous random things but we actually have some influence and some control over what we remember um, so so my hope is that people will become sort of memory architects or memory designers and and finding out ways they can create good moments and happy moments for for them and their families the book tries to help readers become better architects of their own memories and it includes what mike calls a memory manifesto eight tips for creating and remembering happy memories. Much of it is common sense, like celebrating milestones, telling stories about your favourite memories, and seeking out novel experiences. But that last one, seeking out novel experiences, is much easier when you're young. In fact, psychologists talk about the reminiscence bump, which describes the large chunk of memories we have from our youth. Given a particular word as a cue, telephone, say, or car, and told to dredge up a memory associated with that word, most people tend to think of something that happened to them between the ages of 15 and 30. Those, of course, are our formative years, when we experienced a lot of things for the first time. Our first kiss, our first job, our first apartment. Hopefully in that order. And harnessing what Mike calls the power of firsts is one way to create happy memories. He suggests going somewhere new once a year, or, if you've got the stomach for it, trying exotic foods. I, for instance, remember the first time I uh, ate mango. So I was 16. Uh, I was in Australia for one year as an exchange student. Uh, mangoes hadn't been introduced in Denmark, especially the part of Denmark I grew up in. Uh, I saw this exotic fruit, exotic fruit in the fridge and, and I had a taste. And it was, I, I vividly remember that experience thinking, you know, where have you been all my life? Um, and it's quite rare, actually, to, to have some of those new experiences. But it's, it's also, I think, a good idea to think about the different senses uh, in terms of memory. And it doesn't only have to be taste, it can also be uh, scent. Uh, so that's something Andy Warhol, uh, I think, did well. He uh, changed the perfume he wore every three months. So he would wear the same perfume for three months and then never wear it again. That means over time he actually accumulated a museum of scent or a museum of memories. So he could go back in time, he could travel back in time and take a whiff of the perfume he wore in the spring of 1984 and then be transported back uh, to that period. Indeed, according to psychologists, multi-sensory experiences are an extremely effective way to create what are known as episodic memories. Mike recommends taking a leaf out of Andy Warhol's book as he did one lovely summer's day on the Danish island of Bornholm. I was having this, this amazing day and I had been uh, spearfishing, uh, caught a couple of, of flounders and 
uh, because it's Denmark, the water is still cold. So I had come out of the cold water and I was sitting on a warm rock and I was feeling, I was feeling really, really happy and sort of satisfied with, 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 with life in the world. And I said to myself, I want, I want to remember this. What can I do to remember this? And I was writing the book and I thought about Andy Warhol and, and how do I build a, a scent into this? And I grabbed some some dried seaweed <laughs> and I took took a good whiff of that because you know building in a, a scent to a memory will, will help me remember it on you. The point Mike says is to pay attention, to recognize when you feel happy and to mark the moment. It could be by wearing a particular perfume or by sniffing some dried seaweed you've got lying around or it could just be by saying out loud to yourself and others I hope we remember this moment. But noticing it is key. As Samuel Johnson said, the true art of memory is the art of attention. And yet we're living in an age of fragmented attention, one in which our eyeballs are under constant assault by big tech and its weapons of mass distraction. Mike proposes a number of antidotes, from digital detoxes to gratitude journals, to the curation of objects and artifacts that we associate with happy memories. He says we should become the arch enemy of Marie Kondo, the Japanese self-styled expert in decluttering, and instead consciously outsource our memory to souvenirs, diaries, journals, artifacts, objects, and other aid memoirs. As for old photos, if you're anything like me, you've probably got hundreds or thousands stored on your phone or computer, and it's safe to say they're not being printed out anytime soon, which leads to the very real danger that you could lose them all. Mike writes about a potential generation of lost memories and has a few tips to prevent what he dubs digital amnesia. One of my suggestions in the book is um, that people uh, do an event called Curating the Happy Hundred. So, for instance, if you are a family, um, perhaps in the days between, I think, Christmas and and New Year is is a good idea, sitting a family down and going through all the digital photos you've taken this year, your thousands of photos, and then deciding which were our 100 happiest moments, 100 happiest shots, or 10 or 20 or whatever your number is, and then uh, get them printed out and put them in a regular old school photo album. Um, Because... A, you will be more likely to actually see those photos in the years to come than scrolling through your 4,289 photos uh, on your phone. And I think it's also a super good exercise with your kids and getting their insight in what, what they actually think were the happiest moments we had or they had uh, in the past year. Another of Mike's tips is to create a personal social media account. One that only you can access and every day take a photo of your everyday life because that is going to be interesting for you to see in 10 or 20 years. Uh, It's not going to be interesting for your friends and family to watch, uh, but it's also nice for you not to think about what will people think of this photo. It's only for you, this is only for your future self to go back in time and see what did my life look like uh, back in in 2019. So yeah, taking photos of your your everyday life uh, as an investment in your future happiness. In other words, we should all be taking photos not just of unique events, but of everyday things, mundane things like TV sets, phones, toys, clothes, and cereal boxes. The kind of zeitgeist-specific things that you laugh at in old photos. In a similar vein, Mike recommends conducting what he calls 
the 10 years time test? The 10 years time test is, is relatively simple. It's just considering when choosing what to do, what will I most likely uh, remember in, in, in 10 years from now? I did it personally uh, one time uh, a couple of years ago. We were sailing in the Adriatic uh, Sea. Uh, and uh, I had planned to spend the afternoon uh, on uh, the deck reading, and uh, my friend suggested that we should rent uh, jet skis. And I had not tried jet skis before, and I'm not into jet skis, and I'm not into you know speed or machines. Uh, as as I write, I'm more uh, a difficult crosswords and long books kind of daredevil. Um, but then I thought, okay. You know, I can spend the afternoon with uh, Don Quixote uh, on on the boat, or uh, we could go jet skiing. And uh, we did go jet skiing, and it was actually really, really fun. And uh, my friends noticed that I was grinning the whole time, and I'm also sure that that is the thing that I will remember in in now eight uh, years, and not that afternoon with with chapter seventeen to twenty one. Now, what Mike did that day in the Adriatic was use what he calls an emotional highlighter pen doing something that he knew would be exhilarating, if not a little scary. If you listen to the first episode of Archipelago, you may recall the improviser Jay Suko talking about the power of saying yes and to opportunities that come your way. That's what Mike did when his friends asked him to go jet skiing. He knew it would be an emotionally heightened experience, one that he would remember for years to come. So he said yes to it. Emotional experiences are more likely to be remembered. So both good and negative emotions. So when we're scared, when we're sad, but also when we're happy or shameful. Another way of making something memorable is to struggle to do it. To take the train, not the plane. This, apparently, is what lies behind all those surveys revealing that cohabiting couples miraculously do more than 100% of the housework each week. The results can partly be explained by the so-called social desirability effect, the desire of all but the most antediluvian men to come across well and say they do more work around the house than they actually do. But we can't discount the fact that men also appear to find it more of a struggle to do their fair share of the housework, and that means they're more likely to remember doing it and therefore overestimate quite how many chores they did. The struggle may indeed be real, but it can also be turned to our advantage when it comes to making happy memories. As Mike explains, a couple of years ago, he was looking to acquire an ancient coin bearing the image of the Roman goddess of happiness. So I found one of these coins online, but I also knew that if I just added the coin to the the cart, that would not be a memorable experience. And I was uh, planning on going to, to Rome a few months later. So I thought, I will find the coin in Rome. That will be my Indiana Jones moment. It will be more memorable. And I had seen online which uh, stores sold old uh, antique Roman coins and went to the first one. And that was a small shop. They didn't really have a, a big collection. The second one was closed. So the third one was, was uh, my, my last uh, option. And I explained to the shopkeeper what I was looking for. And he said, perhaps we have something, uh, but he didn't know because they categorized the coins based on the front of the coin, which is the emperor, uh, and not the back. So we had to go through his collection with a magnifying glass, which I thought was super awesome to, to have a magnifying glass. And, and we did find actually two coins, and I bought one of them back home. And now that is, is a fun memory to think back of that would not have happened if I had not built in an element of, of sort of uh, taking the long route to getting that coin. 
Mike will never forget how he found that ancient Roman coin because the experience has the three things that provide the foundation for our strongest memories, story, place, and emotion. As we've already heard, emotional experiences are more likely to be remembered, as are particular places, the beach at Bornholm, say, or where we were on 9-11. And we tend to pay much closer attention to information when it's in the form of a narrative. And to show how all this comes together, Mike demonstrates a technique known as the memory palace. Let me just try. Let me try. Using this technique, Mike can memorize the order of a deck of cards within minutes. To do so, he ascribes a different character, real or fictional, to each of the 52 cards. Hearts are friends and relatives. Diamonds are living celebrities. Spades are dead celebrities. And clubs are fictional characters. And the numbers? Threes are musicians. Nines are German. Why? Because the number nine sounds like the German word for no, of course. Mike then ascribes those 52 characters to different locations around a familiar place, like his apartment or childhood home. He then visualizes his route through each room and the characters he meets on the way. So now we have the two of hearts, right? That's Anita standing at the oven. And then, yeah, I had the... So that's a, that's a, that's a nine. So that's the nine of clubs. And then another nine, which is Heidi Klum, She's sitting on the bench, uh, so that will be diamonds, the nine of diamonds. And then another German, which is also a nine, and he's playing the piano, and that is Beethoven. So that is, that must be the nine of spades. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, so I need to practice, <laughs> no, but that's how this, so that's, that's, that's the, the idea yeah. of the system. Three nines in a row, I need to practice my shuffling. What we can take away from this exercise, though, is not just that mastering the memory palace makes for a great party trick, but that telling stories is a very good way of ensuring that we'll remember something. Talking about sad or shameful experiences can also diminish the painful memory of them. We all know that telling embarrassing stories about ourselves isn't just an easy way to get laughs. It can take the sting out of the experience. And knowing how easy it is to recall strong negative emotions, such as sadness and fear, the savvy memory architect can deploy that emotional highlighter pen, even in the aftermath of tragedies that we will likely remember decades later. Those are uh, what we call flashbulb moments. We have quite vivid memories of what happened uh, that day. What we can do in the future when these things happen is also apply the emotional highlighter pen in those circumstances. Our kids are going to remember those tragic events that are going to happen in the future. So those might be good days to let our kids know that they are loved, make their you know, favorite meal, uh, ha have some quality family time together because they are going to remember that day in 10, 20, and 30 years. And finally, it stands to reason that just as we can create happy memories, we can also create unhappy ones, often through no fault of our own. We all have them. I have not met a single human that do not have unhappy memories and have not had uh, unhappy times. That is part of the human experience. My hope is that we will equip people to be better at creating happy memories and be better at holding on to them. So when they look back in 5, 10, 20 years, hopefully more happy memories than negative ones will, uh, will be retrieved. 
This is the main point of Mike's book, that happy memories are essential to our mental health and our sense of purpose and identity, and that memories aren't just things that happen, they're things we can control. As memory architects, it's ultimately in our hands to decide what kind of memories we want to create and which ones are worth holding on to. In happiness research, you know, we see the importance of our connections, our social relationships, um, sharing moments, being grateful, connecting with people uh, is one of the best predictors of whether people are happy or not. So, so we cannot endorse that enough. But I think it's also you know, taking an active role, for instance, in being a memory architect as a parent, you know, understanding that you can actually influence what your kids will remember in the future when they think back of their hopefully happy childhood. Perhaps writing letters to their future selves of about some of their happy memories, some of their happy episodes, uh, because that can help them hold on to that memory in the future. That was Mike Viking, the author of The Art of Making Memories, which is available now through Penguin Random House. And that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. If you have, tell your friends. And if you're feeling generous, take a second to review or rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people like you discover us. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, James Clasper, for Mother Tongue Media. The sound design is by two Copenhagen-based musicians, Squares and Triangles and Scenery. You can find links to their music on our homepage, archipelago.mothertongue.dk. I'm off to write a future letter to myself, describing the very happy memory of making this episode. Many thanks again for listening, and see you in a few weeks.